A number of years ago, when our niece was just learning how to talk, I remember so clearly her walking around uh, the airport, the house outside parks, and pointing at things and saying, name, name, name. She was wanting to know what, what, what is that thing? What do you call it? How am I in relationship to it? Who is that person? What are, what, what, what's that person's name? What is that thing? And who am I? What's my name in relationship to that name? It's a question, ultimately, this name, name, name about relationship and identity. It's a question as old as the human story. One of my favorite teaching stories that has to do with this dynamic comes from the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe some of you remember this moment when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai in this teaching story, and Moses is trying to get his bearings on what's going on, and he asks God, in essence, what's your name? He's like, who are you? Who, who are you? And the context is that Moses and the Israelites are three months out of Egypt, out of bondage, and God has basically just commissioned Moses to lead them the rest of the way. And Moses is thinking, holy cow. <laughs> like, I have no recognition in the polls, really. Like, these people don't really know who I am. I stutter a bit, and this desert wandering shtick isn't really my thing. Moses is throwing around a lot of buts, but, but God, but God, but listen, God, listen. If I go back to the Israelites and I say to them, because this is what God says to Moses to say, he says, if I say to them, the God of your ancestors sent me, and they say, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And Moses is just trying to nail this down. He's trying to be clear, like, tell me who you are so I can go back to people and we can get this whole thing straightened out. And God says to Moses, Moses, quit your belly aching. I think that's in the original translation, actually. <laughs> Stop your belly aching, but buster. <laughs> Here's what you tell them. So he gets really clear with Moses. It's like, Moses has been waiting for this moment. Here's what you tell them, he says, God says, she says, whatever. Say that I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And Moses scrunches up his face. But God, what kind of name is that? So here's Moses, this reluctant leader, trying to nail down the details of this divine plan, and he's scrambling. I imagine him being like, God, can I get your mother's maiden name and uh, maybe your real name from your birth certificate, please? And God just laughs him off and says, I am who I am. And the translation in the Hebrew is really, I am what I will become. I am the essence of interbeing. And so I imagine that God is just saying, call me the one that becomes, the one that opens our hearts to compassion. Call me that which is unfolding. Now, God can get away with that. But for us mere mortals, names really matter. We classify and divide and anchor ourselves in relationship to what we name things. But names can also divide us and separate us and create concrete identities when there is so much more just resting beneath the surface, so much more in each of us. How we name things can prevent us from seeing the richness and the fullness can prevent us from seeing the divine essence that is in 
each human heart. Sometimes names, the names we use all the time, completely miss the essence. For example, when my grandfather was nearing the end of his life, many of the names I had previously used for him no longer worked or seemed right. He had been a teacher, he had been a outdoor enthusiast, he had been a, a grandfather, and the new names I was starting to use, dementia and Alzheimer's and lost in a fog and slipping away, they didn't seem right either. Mentally and physically, my grandfather was almost gone, but perhaps the essence of his spirit, one of his true names, was there somewhere beyond Alzheimer's, beyond the other names I knew him by. When our son Tucker was just a few years old, my wife and I went to visit my grandparents. We knew they were declining, and we had dinner together with them in a little dining room off of the main dining hall in the care facility they were in. And we sat down for dinner, and there wasn't much conversation happening because my grandmother at that time was mostly deaf, and my grandfather couldn't really put words together. But the table transformed when we brought out these two metal toy cars we brought for our son to play with at dinner so he'd have something to do while we waited for the food. And he, just like kids do, began to play with them on the table, driving them back and forth. And then there was this moment where our son and my grandfather started pushing the car back and forth to one another. And they started grinning and laughing at one another, and they both started saying, vroom, 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 just pushing it back and forth. There was no need for words. There was no need for anything as far as conversation. Vroom. It was this very intimate, very beautiful moment. And my wife and I joined in. It was a place of deep connection. Call me by my true names, says Thich Nhat Hanh. Maybe one of my grandfather's true names was Playful Loving Spirit. I've been thinking a lot about names lately, about restoring, reclaiming, remembering our true names, especially in this season, the season we've just moved through of the high holy days in the Jewish tradition. I was here Tuesday, this past Tuesday, I welcomed hundreds of congregants in this sanctuary on the eve of Yom Kippur, this time of reflection and introspection, a time to review the past year, to recognize all of one's names and all of one's actions, a time to make amends and to atone for wrongdoing so that you can move into the new year in a spirit of kindness and love. There's a Hebrew word associated with this holiday, teshuva, teshuva, and it's often this sense of returning, of coming home to the roots of who you are, to see clearly all of your true names. So in this season of introspection, of exploring our root systems and the many names that we can claim, the invitation is to see beyond the simple binary of good and evil and the complexity that rests in those names because our names and our lives are complex and messy. So this morning, 
I want to lift up the names of two people that we are intimately connected to in our root system as a faith community. My hope is that in remembering these names, we might see parts of ourselves in these people and at the same time begin to imagine and chart a different path forward. I suspect, honestly, you know these names and perhaps quite well. The first name is William Washburn. Washburn, who, you guys know Washburn, right? Yeah, lots of Washburn. Washburn was a founding member of this church in 1859. He had moved out here two years before that in 1857 from Maine. He came from a wealthy East Coast family. Washburn served on the board of trustees for 50 years at this church. We no longer ask our trustees to serve for such a uh, lengthy time. Uh, so it's, it's a lot easier to get members to serve on the board of trustees these days. And in fact, in my office, I have this gift uh, this, um, from the church to William Washburn on the 50th anniversary of the church, thanking him for his leadership for 50 years. His business ventures in lumber, he cleared out a lot of white pine and in flour milling allowed him to amass a huge fortune. And by 1880s, he was one of the wealthiest Minnesotans. He gave an expensive organ to the first church building. He helped build the bell tower in the second church building. And the history of our city has Washburn's fingerprints all over it. There's a library and a school. He served as president of a railroad line company. And then he and other members of his family established the Pillsbury Washburn Milling Company, which became General Mills. Our minister emeritus likes to remind us that Washburn and other early universalists helped found and create the Minneapolis Club, the Institute of Art, Lakewood Cemetery, and the Minnesota Orchestra. The W in WCCO Radio, Washburn, of the Washburn family. In many ways, Washburn was a civic leader and a progressive, and he helped create this church and this city. In the 1880s, as a U.S. Senator, he pushed for the United States to build dams on the lakes that were at the headwaters of the Mississippi River. He wanted to secure a reliable flow of water to come through St. Anthony Falls for his milling business and the milling businesses of others and to aid in navigation. According to a recent piece in the Star Tribune, it seemed to come as an afterthought that the proposed dams might impact Ojibwe people living in profound relationship with those lakes on homelands that had been recognized as their reservations in an 1855 treaty. As a result of these dams on Leech Lake and other lakes, the lakes all rose well above their benchmark flooding levels and it submerged nearly 200,000 acres around these lakes. This flooding destroyed, and I quote, the vast beds at water's edge of wild rice, and it displaced fish populations and killed fish populations. The flooding lay waste to homes and gardens and villages, graves, and the social and spiritual bonds of the good life on the land." End of quote. Without William Washburn, I don't know if there'd be a first universalist church. He's part of our root system and he was part of a system that believed and still believes that the economic needs of men like himself trump the rights and needs of indigenous people. One need only look at the Keystone Pipeline and other pipelines to know this. How can we name and own this history with deep compassion? 
How can we name and own this history with deep compassion? And the next name perhaps requires even deeper owning and even deeper compassion. It's a name I'm sure you've been reading about in the paper this past week. It's John Calhoun, who was raised Presbyterian, but then at Yale, and there's a college at Yale named after him, Calhoun College. At Yale, he first encountered Unitarian ideas, and he was attracted to the rational and philosophical orientation of the Unitarian Church. It was John Calhoun and several others who helped found All Souls Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C. in 1822. He gave generously to the church's construction and he attended services there. And today, these many years later, that church in D.C. is one of our flagship congregations living out a multiracial, multicultural identity. Would all souls exist without Calhoun's support? I don't know. But he helped that church be born, and he is part of our larger root system. He was a U.S. representative, a senator, a secretary of war, and vice president. It was as secretary of war in 1817 that Calhoun sent army officers out to this area to survey the land and to build Fort Snelling. Calhoun played a key role in authoring an early version of the Indian Removal Act, which forced indigenous people living east of the Mississippi and Georgia and other southern states to then relocate to land west of the Mississippi. That legislation was later enacted by President Andrew Jackson. The forced removal is known as the Trail of Tears. Calhoun was also a fierce defender of states' rights, and he never wavered from his defense of slavery, believing it a positive good. His writings, his sharp, critical mind and writings deeply influenced southern states in their move to secede from the Union. John Calhoun is part of our root system. His actions helped create and found a flagship church in D.C., and his actions caused incredible pain and suffering and damage to both Africans enslaved in this country as well as indigenous people. And the flagship lake in the middle of our city, just over here, is named in honor of him. This is not abstract history from some other place or from some other people. This is part of our history part of our root system. And whether we want it to be this way or not, we are connected to these stories, to this lake, to the headwaters of headwater lakes of the Mississippi and the people who live there. It is complicated and messy to remember and to name and to reclaim that history, to see it with its many names. And I think of my niece, learning to speak, asking, name, name, name. What is that thing? What is that person? What is that story? How am I in relationship with that thing I am seeing or naming? What is the true name of Washburn? What is the true name of Calhoun? What do we call the men and women who make up our religious history, who were often trapped in a belief system of white supremacy, who often did great harm and great good? How are they and their many names alive in us? What are our names? 
I think of my grandfather, lost in dementia, who seemed stripped of all his names, and yet I caught a glimpse, perhaps, of one of his true names. The poet says to us, call us by our true names. Call us by our true names. Remind us of our deep connections to grief and pain and joy and how that is woven with others. Remind us that even today we are still arriving. Call us by our true names so that we can awaken and the doors of our heart, the doors of compassion might open. Call us by our true names. Amen.